This episode of British Murders is sponsored by Disturbed Law. Created by Alex G. Bloom, Disturbed Law is an extremely unique YouTube channel consisting of animated horror story videos. These disturbing short stories are separated into various playlists, with each one containing its own unique story and characters. But, listener beware, Disturbed Law is not for the faint-hearted. The green-eyed woman is out there. She's hunting. She needs targets. But she's not alone. What's out there is much darker. Visit Disturbed Law on YouTube if you dare. to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. This episode of British Murders takes place in the suburban district of Southall in West London. According to the 2011 UK Census, Southall's population comprises people originating from South Asia. The UK Census is a survey that happens every 10 years and provides a picture of all the people and households in England and Wales. 47% of Southall residents are Indian, 14% are Pakistani and 16% are other Asian. Southall has the lowest proportion of white British residents in the UK with 93.7% of Southall's population being black, Asian or ethnic minority. Southall is sometimes referred to as Little India after the migration of many South Asians during the 1950s and 60s. One of the critical reasons migrants settled in Southall was its proximity to Heathrow Airport, one of Europe's top 10 busiest airports before the COVID-19 pandemic that is. The airport provided a work opportunity and a means to return to South Asia quickly should the need arise. This episode's subject is Geeta Orlak, a 28-year-old receptionist who worked at Sunrise Radio, a London-based TV and radio station. Sunrise Radio first aired on November 5th, 1989, providing broadcast focusing exclusively on the Asian community of the UK. Its broadcast area is Greater London, However, it is also available to stream online. Geeta worked at Sunrise Radio as a receptionist and was well liked by her colleagues. Her strong work ethic and desire to provide for her two young sons were crucial reasons behind her colleagues respecting her. Arriving in the UK from India in the 1970s, Geeta's parents, Lakwinda and Nadesh Shin, intended to make a better life for themselves and saw the move as the first step in that process. They started their own jewellery business before eventually starting a family, 
Gita had a happy childhood in a reasonably middle-class family. One of five children, Gita had two sisters named Suman and Anita, and two brothers. The bustling district of South Hall was the perfect place for the young siblings to explore together as it fully embraced their South Asian culture and heritage. There was, and still is, a real sense of independence and self-reliance within the community of Southall. When Gita was 17, she met who she thought was the man of her dreams. Harpreet Orlak, who went by the nickname Sonny, described Gita as his first love, though he failed to make a good impression on the teenager's parents. Lakwinda and Nardesh, Gita's parents, felt that Sonny wasn't good enough for their daughter and that she could do better. Arranged marriages are still the most common way for Indians to marry. In an arranged marriage, parents and other relatives settle on a life partner they find appropriate for their child. More recently, there is a growing trend within the Indian community for some women to choose their partners or to not marry at all. Geeta's decision to choose her life partner was controversial. The Indian community saw this as Geeta opting for a love marriage rather than an arranged marriage. That means marrying for love rather than taking the traditional route and marrying for suitability. Having not been accepted by Geeta's family, Sonny and Geeta eloped to Belgium in Western Europe. Whilst there, the couple not only got married, but had two children. Tejdeep and his younger brother Karam were the apple of both their parents' eyes. After spending around three years in Belgium, the Orlak family moved back to London in 2001. Sadly, their once happy marriage didn't follow them back to England. During an evening in September of 2002, one of the couple's increasingly frequent arguments escalated to the point where Geeta felt the need to dial 999, the UK's emergency service number. It's our equivalent to 911. Despite police officers attending the property, when allowed to file a police report against her husband, Geeta refused. As a result, the police dismissed the incident as no crime. No crime means that no report was filed against Sonny for anything, despite Geeta ringing the police. A similar chain of events happened in October of 2008, some six years later. Geeta summoned the police again, but they dismissed the incident also as no crime. In situations such as this, the police will typically refer the victim to a safety unit within the community and provide several contacts for domestic abuse agencies and charities. The ongoing domestic abuse incidents, followed by Geeta summoning the police to Sonny's door, became too much for him to bear. He eventually disappeared in 2009 and moved back home to India. Now forced to look after her two boys independently as a single parent, Geeta worked at Sunrise Radio. In September 2009, Geeta shocked the entire community of South Hall by filing for a divorce. In the UK, there is only one ground on which a spouse can petition for divorce. It is that the marriage has irretrievably broken down. In cases such as this, Divorce must prove one of the following five factors to show this under the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1973. Number one, adultery. Number two, 
unreasonable behaviour such that the petitioner cannot expect to live with the respondent reasonably. Number three, desertion. Number four, two years separation with the consent of the other party. Number five, five years of living apart without permission. Within the Indian community though, divorce is still seen as a somewhat taboo word, primarily when prompted by a married couple's wife. It is not as big of a deal should a husband want to divorce his wife, yet reverse the roles and the world would come to a halt. News of Geeta's divorce request led to a very angry Sonny Orlak to cut short his trip to India and return home to West London. Having found new accommodation, Sonny now had the advantage of knowing where Geeta lived and where the two boys Childminder lived. He had the benefit of anonymity as Geeta was unaware of where Sonny was now living. A Childminder, if you are wondering, is simply the British term for a nanny. The individual who would look after Geeta's sons from the time they finished school until Geeta finished work and collected them. Another reason Sonny kept his new residence a secret, aside from the feeling of power and control, was to prevent any divorce papers from being served on him. Upon finishing her shift at Sunrise Radio, Geeta would always take the same route to the Childminders. She would board the number 105 bus and walk the short distance from the bus stop to the house where the boys would be eagerly waiting for her to arrive. The Childminder's house wasn't far from where Geeta lived. She purposely decided each night to get off a couple of stops later than she perhaps could if she wanted to collect the boys sooner. The reason for this was simple. The longer route was better lit and was more in the open than the faster walking routes. On the evening of November 16th, 2009, Geeta boarded the number 105 bus at around 6.25pm. CCTV footage from inside the bus shows Geeta getting on and getting off. This bus journey was the last time she would be seen alive. While walking towards the Childminders, an unknown assailant wielding a 14-inch machete ambushed Geeta on Brond Avenue's corner. It appeared as if her attacker was waiting for her arrival. Therefore, it is reasonable to assume the attacker had prior knowledge of the route Geeta took each day after work to collect her sons. After being struck with the machete many times, Geeta lay defenceless on the pavement whilst her attacker fled the scene, leaving her to die. A few locals spotted Geeta's lifeless body and they quickly called an ambulance. Upon arriving at the scene, paramedics worked on Geeta first in the street and later at a local hospital. Geeta's parents, Lakwinda and Nardesh Shin, rushed to the hospital. Doctors were sadly unable to save Geeta. She died from her injuries in the hospital later that same evening. The post-mortem revealed that Geeta had suffered four blows to the back of her head with a sharp instrument. Pathologists had not yet identified the murder weapon as being a machete. Geeta's right hand was severed between the thumb and forefinger and was lucky to be still attached. Pathologists assumed that the injury to Geeta's hand was a defensive wound caused by raising her hand to protect herself from the onslaught of machete swings. It wasn't long after discovering the post-mortem results 
that the Homicide and Serious Crime Command launched a murder inquiry. Detective Chief Inspector Howard Groves led the investigation. The Homicide and Serious Crime Command was a unit of the Metropolitan Police, also known as the Met, the Territorial Police Force of Greater London. It is now known as the Homicide and Major Crime Command, which falls within the Met Police's non-basic command unit's frontline policing structure. That is a mouthful. DCI Groves had a few things to establish at the start of the investigation. Why was Geeta attacked so viciously? Did she know her attacker? Or was it a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was the attack random or was it deliberate? A deep dive into Geeta's background and lifestyle would also occur early on. This background check could potentially provide the police with some leads and help them identify any potential suspects. In the aftermath of such a horrific tragedy, the Indian community of Southall became very concerned that such a crime could happen in the local area. Geeta's family laid flowers at the corner of Brond Avenue and were understandably too shaken up to make any form of a statement to the awaiting British press. An examination of Geeta's family life led to the police looking at Sonny Orlack as the first potential suspect in the case. The police were aware of the historical conflicts between the couple. They wanted to question Sonny about his whereabouts on November 16, 2009. As the police weren't aware of Sonny's address, they utilised mobile phone tracking technology to locate him. In the UK, we call cell phones mobiles or mobile phones, just so you're aware. A summary of the process is as follows. 1. The phone sends a signal to a nearby base station or cell tower. Number 2. Positioning software then performs a triangulation calculation on the information from the base stations. That is a great rhyme. And number three, the subsequent data converts into a geographical location. As it connects to the mobile network, each phone identifies itself in two ways. The SIM card sends its unique IMSI number, which stands for International Mobile Subscriber Identity, this number begins with the user account country code, followed by the network code, and eventually the telephone number. The IMEI, International Mobile Equipment Identity, is the second number. This number relates to the handset and remains unchanged even with a swapped SIM card. Whenever they call and frequently check in to the local base stations or cell towers, Mobile phones relay these numbers. The base station which processes the call provides the first clue as to the location of the phone. This information gives police an idea of which area to search. Other base stations can also make contact with the phone. Several base stations gather information and triangulation narrows down the phone's location. Another great rhyme. In built-up areas such as London, where the base stations are close together, this can be within a few hundred metres. The police also use bed and breakfast analysis. 
this process essentially means that an individual's phone will signal a cell tower in the evening and the same cell tower the following morning. This information represents the last and first place the suspect used the phone. Police located Sonny Orlak after only one day of research analysis. He lived in a shared property with some other males from the Indian community on Vicarage Farm Road in Hounslow, a town around four miles south of Southall. Two police units raided the house and arrested the six males living at the property. When processing the six men, the police decided to release five of them. The man police held for questioning was Sonny Orlak, Geeta's husband. They got their man. Surprisingly, Sonny had an alibi for his whereabouts on the evening of his wife's murder. He was nowhere near the murder site on the corner of Brond Avenue. Sonny was in the Elm Tree Pub, a pub in Hounslow. He stated he did not know about the attack. CCTV from the Elm Tree Pub backed up Sonny's story which showed him drinking and playing pool with friends when the attack took place. Further confirmation came when police checked Sonny's credit card records. They confirmed a drinks purchase at the bar of the Elm Tree that same evening. This left police confused and set the murder inquiry back. The main suspect had a concrete alibi and no further suspects were on their radar. They were also struggling with regards to the motive behind the attack. Just as they were about to lose hope, something completely unexpected happened at Southall Police Station. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. A 30-year-old man named Jaswant Dillon walked through the main doors, approached the front desk, and asked if he could speak with someone working the Gita Orlak case. Jaswant stated that he had crucial information concerning Geeta's murder. When he spoke to an officer working the case, Jaswant confirmed that he was present at Brond Avenue on the night of the murder. Jaswant also claimed that he knew who the killer was and where the killer discarded the murder weapon. In an attempt to proclaim his innocence, Jaswant stated that he believed his role was that of a driver for what he thought was a simple debt collection. He also said that he was in the car when the murder took place and had no idea that this latest suspect would kill Geeta. According to Jaswant, there were three people present that night. Whilst having a smoke with one of the individuals, Jaswant states he suddenly just walked off. Assuming he had gone to collect the debt, Jaswant got back in the car and waited for him to return. When he did, it was clear that he had been running as between deep, gasping breaths, he muttered, I killed her. The trio then drove through Slough, a town in West London, and navigated through a labyrinth of small streets to the Slough Arm, a short canal branch of the Grand Union Canal. The murder weapon, which Jaswant revealed was a machete, was then dumped in the canal. On their way back into London, the trio drove on the M4, and stopped on the hard shoulder. It was here that the killer discarded his trainers. The M4 is a motorway or freeway. The hard shoulder is a lane on the far left of a motorway used for emergencies in which you need to stop. 
Remember, we drive on the left in the UK, not the right. Following these detailed tips, Jaswan accompanied a small number of officers to the canal and hard shoulder. Police found both the machete and trainers exactly where Jaswan said they would be. When recovering the machete from the canal, divers also recovered a jacket. Forensic experts found hair and DNA from Gita Orlak on the jacket, along with the wearer's DNA. The killer most likely transferred this evidence to Gita during the frenzied attack. Knowing that Jaswant's information was credible, police treated him as a significant witness in the murder inquiry. Police still needed to determine whether he was telling the truth or merely telling them things that pointed to him being innocent. The next piece of information provided by Jaswant was perhaps the most crucial so far. He gave the police the name of the man holding the machete. His name was Sher Singh. In July 2009, four months before Geeta's murder, 18-year-old Sher Singh was flown to the UK on a Tier 4 student visa from India. When studying in the UK on a Tier 4 visa, the length of time you're allowed to stay in the country depends entirely on your course length, whilst considering any studies you may have already completed. For adults, meaning individuals over 18 years of age, you can usually stay in the UK for up to a maximum of five years, assuming the course is degree level. If the course is less than a degree level, it is typically a maximum stay of two years. Sher enrolled at Kings Langley College in Newcross, South East London, opting to take on a hospitality management course. After attending the first day of the course and signing the register, staff never saw him at the college again. This scam was a common thing to do within the South Asian communities of West London as it enabled migrants to get to the UK legitimately. The college informed the UK Borders Agency that Sher had violated his visa terms, but agency officials failed to find him. Once the police had Sher's name, they not only had another suspect to arrest, but they also potentially knew the identity of Geeta's killer. Police planned another raid on a shared property in Southall. They arrived early in the morning and broke the door down. None of the six males identified was Sher Singh. Police questioned the men, but were limited in the information they could gather as their English grasp was poor. Confident that Sher would at some point return to the property, police left a sole officer at the house with no police car parked outside. The hope was that Sher would enter the property and be none the wiser that an officer would be waiting for him to arrive. Eventually, Sher returned to the house. Rather than asking him directly if he was Sher Singh, officers instead greeted him by saying, Hello, Sher Singh. Sher responded with a hello of his own. This shrewd tactic allowed police to identify Sher without allowing him to deny who he was. Sher Singh was subsequently arrested and charged with the murder of Gita Orlak. Samples of his DNA were taken and matched those found on the machete, jacket and trainers recovered by officers on the back of the information provided by Jaswant Dillon. Police sent a multitude of questions Sher's way. Did he know Jaswant Dillon? Where was he on the night of Gita's murder? Did he dump the machete, jacket and trainers? 
was he at any point on Brond Avenue, the location of the murder? Sher remained tight-lipped and answered every question by saying, no comment. Given Sher's lack of a response to the police's questions, investigators were still finding it difficult to establish a motive. They weren't satisfied that this was simply a random attack, despite no evidence to the contrary. Officers called Jaswant back to the station to provide further information on the vehicle used to drive the killer to and from the murder site. He revealed the car, rented from Slough, was a black or dark blue Renault with a 51 or 52 registration plate. For some context, in the UK, each car's license plate or registration plate comprises seven alphanumeric characters. The first two characters are letters that indicate where the vehicle was registered. The third and fourth characters are numbers that indicate the age of the vehicle. 51 plate vehicles were registered between September 1st, 2001 and February 28th, 2002. 52 plate vehicles were registered between September 1st, 2002 and February 28th, 2003. The last three characters on a UK registration plate are just random, meaningless letters. Jaswan also described the driver on the evening of Geeta's murder. Police set up a surveillance team to locate the third man involved in this horrific crime. Police finally located the latest suspect and followed him on his way to work one morning. He was soon arrested and, upon searching his vehicle, police found a parking ticket relating to a 52-plate Renault Clio. The third suspect, now identified as Harpreet Singh, was also charged with the murder of Geeta Orlak. He had been driving the car which took Geeta's killer to the murder site and was therefore legally responsible for his passenger's actions. This controversial law is known as joint enterprise. It essentially means that anyone involved in an offence, such as a murder, can be charged with it even if their participation didn't involve distributing the fatal blow. Many cases have been subject to controversy as a result of joint enterprise law. Despite having two suspects in custody, including Geeta's killer and the getaway driver, police still had no motive. The motive is one of the most crucial parts of any investigation. At this point, police decided to appeal to the Indian community of Southall for any information that might assist police with the case. A press conference took place in which Geeta's mother and sister both made emotional pleas for help. Investigations continued into December 2009. Police then came across circumstantial evidence that would mark the beginning of the end for everyone involved in the murder of Geeta Orlak. Officers located video camera footage of a wedding in India. In it, Sher Singh, Geeta's killer, was seen dancing with Sunny Orlak and Sunny's mother. This footage connected the man who murdered Sunny's wife with Sunny himself. Police discovered that Sunny and Sher's respective families were neighbours in India, living only one mile apart. They were close friends. They were so close that Sunny was responsible for running the student visa scam which enabled Sher Singh to enter the UK. Sunny had made a considerable amount of money with this scam. He was the go-to guy for those trying to start a new life in the UK. 
As a result of this new link to Geeta's killer, Sonny was questioned further, despite him having an alibi on the evening of the murder. It became clear that Sonny thought Geeta was having an affair with someone. This paranoia even extended to Sonny being suspicious of Geeta travelling to India with a female friend. The friend in question spoke to Sonny over the phone and reassured him that Geeta wasn't having an affair, but this didn't satiate his paranoia. Sonny said to Geeta's friend that he would kill Geeta's boyfriend and his wife as well. Sonny was giving Geeta death threats despite there being zero evidence to show that she was ever unfaithful to him. The idea of Geeta's death being an honour killing was then floated about. An honour killing essentially means to kill someone who has brought shame and dishonour to the family. An example would be a daughter being killed either by or on her father's instruction if she chose to marry someone of a different faith. That is an extreme example, but it gives you an idea about the term honour killing. DCI Howard Groves wasn't comfortable with this though, and wanted to ensure the investigating team didn't go down the route of focusing on this being an honour killing. To DCI Groves, this was a murder in which an individual had killed an innocent woman. Seeking justice for Gita needed to remain the priority. Further investigation of the machete used to kill Gita showed it had the words Tramontina Brazil inscribed on the base of the 14-inch blade near the handle. Tramontina is a Brazilian company that manufactures cookware, cutlery and home appliances. Its headquarters are in Carlos Barbosa, a town in Rio Grande do Sul, southern Brazil. Police made contact with Tramontina and asked them about the UK import of their machetes. They stated that only one UK firm imported machetes from them. Based in Cumbria, a county in northwest England, the UK company provided the police with a list of who they had supplied the Tramontina machetes to during the last 12 months in West London. One of the buyers was a local shop located on Vicarage Farm Road in Hounslow, the same road on which Sonny lived. The shop had purchased a total of 20 machetes from the Cumbria suppliers a couple of months before Geeta's murder. The shop owner told police that only 17 machetes were left in stock, indicating that he had sold three. Sales records were pulled, which showed that customers purchased machetes from the shop on the 5th, 9th and 15th of November 2009, respectively. The shop provided the police with CCTV footage of all three machete purchases. Upon viewing the footage, police discovered that Sonny had visited the shop and purchased the weapon Sher Singh would use to murder his wife the following evening. The CCTV footage showed Sonny conversing with the shop owner. According to the testimony of the shop owner, Sonny had asked him how to sharpen the machete. This dialogue from Sonny matched what police knew about the murder weapon. The machete, once recovered from the canal, was discovered to have been recently sharpened. This realisation came when police had replicas made of the machete in store-bought condition and in the state in which officers found it. Sonny had indeed sharpened the machete before Sher had used it on Gita. Following the discovery of this new information, 
police formally charged Sonny Orlack with the murder of Gita Orlack. Disturbingly, Sonny was laughing and showed no remorse or regret when charged. Like with Sher and Harpreet Singh, Sonny remained uncooperative during questioning. Police then questioned the individuals living in a property rented out by Sonny and his brother. Around six males lived at the property, and it came to light that Sonny once visited to make an offer of £5,000 in exchange for killing someone. He didn't name Gita, instead he was throwing the question out there. Sonny soon played it off as a joke when the property's males reacted with shock at his outrageously inappropriate offer. The phone records of all four men, including informant Jaswant Dillon, were then examined. Jaswant, until this point not treated as a suspect, was placed in the same place as the three suspects in custody only a few days before Geeta's murder. Officers confirmed this information via the GPS data from each of the four men's mobile phones. Police suspected this to have been a run-through of the murder plot. In a sense, the group were acting out the events of the murder before it happened. Jaswan was in direct contact with Sonny immediately before and after Geeta's murder. CCTV footage at the Elm Tree pub showed Sonny on the phone. The person on the other end was Jaswan Dillon. Police quickly arrested Jaswan, who had gone from an innocent informant to being revealed as Sonny's enforcer the man responsible for making sure everything went as planned. You may wonder why Jaswan voluntarily visited Southall Police Station to become an informant. The theory is that he was likely worried about what Sonny was saying about his involvement in the murder. He wanted to proactively clear his name. Perhaps Jaswan thought he may receive a reduced sentence if he helped the police with the investigation should he ever be charged. The murder trial started in December 2010 and lasted six weeks. It took place at the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, commonly referred to as the Old Bailey. Each of the defendant's legal teams blamed each other for Geeta's murder, known as a cutthroat defence. This tactic didn't work for any of the four suspects charged. They were all charged with the murder of Gita Orlak. Sher Singh, Gita's killer, was handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 22 years. Harpreet Singh, the getaway driver, was also handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 22 years. Jaswant Dillon, the enforcer, received the same sentence, life imprisonment with a minimum term of 22 years. Sonny Orlak, Geeta's husband and the man behind the murder plot, was handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 28 years. In August 2018, eight years after being sent to prison, Sonny was repatriated to a jail in India at his request. He wanted to serve the remaining 20 years of his sentence in his home province. Police saw this request as somewhat unusual as Indian prisons were a lot tougher and stricter than UK prisons. Nevertheless, the transfer went ahead regardless. Police raised suspicions that Sonny may have contacts within the Indian police force and wouldn't serve his full sentence. They were right to be suspicious. Indian police released Sonny Orlak after only two years. 
Geeta's sister, Anita, made UK police aware of this. Understandably furious, Anita spoke with the Home Office, who liaised with their contacts in India. Sunny was soon brought back to the Indian jail. Seeing how successful this was for Sunny, Sher Singh and Jaswant Dillon successfully repatriated to prisons in India. As far as UK police are aware, all three men are still serving their sentences in India. Only Harpreet Singh remains in the UK prison system to date. That was the story of British murderer Harpreet Orlak. For more on British murders, please like and subscribe to my channel on social media. All the links are in the episode description. Please send your British murder case suggestions to me via social media or email, which is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com for me to cover in future episodes. If you're enjoying British murders, please leave me a review on iTunes. It helps the channel grow massively and would be greatly appreciated. I will also be shouting out anyone that leaves me a review, as I mentioned at the start of the show. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.